Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. On this episode of Most Notorious, Quack Doctor and Jack the Ripper Suspect, Francis Tumblety. So it was the uterus from two women, the kidney from one, and then the heart from Mary Kelly. How coincidental that in January of 1888, and when Tumblety was in Toronto, he told this Toronto reporter that he was constantly in dread of sudden death because of kidney and heart disease. And here's a guy who has a history of this uterus collection. So those organs can only be connected to one suspect when you look at all the suspects. Nobody else knows why did Jack the Ripper steal those organs. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you for joining me. Just a quick reminder, my new Aghast at the Past 1892 podcast begins on January 1st. I released a trailer a few days ago, and if you haven't heard it yet, give it a listen. And if you haven't subscribed yet, do it now. All right, on to the interview. I am so pleased to introduce my guest, author and lecturer Michael L. Hawley. He is a retired commander and naval aviator in the U.S. Navy and currently a co-host on NBC Radio's House of Mystery. He is the author of seven books as well, and the one he is here to talk about today is called Jack the Ripper, Suspect, Dr. Francis Tumblety. Thank you for joining me today. Great to have you. Oh, my pleasure. So the Jack the Ripper murders are very iconic. And there are so many suspects. And there are a lot of fans of the case, uh, armchair detectives, um, who feel very strongly about one suspect or another. It's got to be difficult wading into this famous case, especially with a book. Uh, lots of praise, but, but lots of criticism, too, from people who have such firm opinions about who they think Jack the Ripper really was. Right. Oh, yeah, for sure. And then uh, one of the things that I I did was I went basically the appropriate way. My background is the physical sciences, and I, I've done peer review. And peer review is you go right to the experts. And then so what I did was is my research articles are based on data, stuff I found. 
And so then I would uh, send it off to one of our journals that we write to as a ripperologist. So I've written over a dozen of those. And my books are basically a compilation of those articles because they all fit. My, my first book, The Ripper's Haunts, or the nonfiction uh, that was based on Francis Tumblety that came out in uh, 2016, one of the uh, expert of experts, a Paul Begg, who's been researching this for decades, for over 40 years. He is the book reviewer of all Jack the Ripper books. And he's really critical because he wants to make sure that, uh, you know, it's uh, a, a credible book. And so what he had said about mine was that it was uh, the best book of 2016 and for that matter, 2015. And now we have to take Tumbley seriously. And why that was important is because even though Francis Tumbley was rediscovered in the early 1990s by Stuart Evans, when I got involved in 2009, the experts tended to think Tumbley was not considered a serious suspect at all. Even Scotland Yard did not consider him a suspect. Well, the discoveries I found were the reverse of that. And the, the man that had discovered him, Stuart Evans, demonstrated that he was actually correct, that Tumbley was not only a serious suspect, he was probably the serious suspect at the peak of the murders. So I exploited the experts. And so what happens is uh, I find value in it because it's all based on the experts ripping me apart. So, you know, it's kind of a ironic to use the term ripping apart, but that's the only way that you can judge or assess your book. And it's kind of tougher because many researchers are gen generalists where they research the Jack the Ripper murders because there's so much to it but they're not specialists as in suspect ripperologists. And I'm a suspect ripperologist, so people tend to automatically assume that you're biased. So that's why I have to go right to the experts and let them uh, look at my research with a fine-tuned comb so uh, that uh, any kind of mistakes, they're going to bring it out. So, so Tumblety is actually considered the American suspect, right? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So there's a couple suspects that are you know, from America, but Tumbley actually was, he considered himself a British subject because he was born in Ireland in 1830. And then uh, during the potato famine, that's when he came across 1847 with his, with his family. Although there's some family members already here, uh, the fa I found the father and the, the family in Ireland uh, in, uh, and they were on a poor tenant farm in County Meath, so when he uh, tumbly started going back and forth to England after he was basically a millionaire in today's standards by around 1869, and then he, every year he would go to, uh, to England up until the, the murders. He was an American. He would, it depends on who he was talking to. He'd say he was an American or he was a British subject. So Tumblety was a doctor by period standards anyway. Yeah, I mean, there were different kinds of doctors back then. How's that? So the uh, established medical community was was in its infancy. And the medical community with going to med school, they opted for allopathic medicine, which is chemistry. But during the mid-1800s and the early 1800s, they were still bloodletting. And they were still using poisonous substances. But at the time, same time, there was homeopathic medicine around there was herbalistic medicines, different kinds, Thomsonian herbalistic medicine, 
And what Tumbley did was the Indian herb doctor. He was an herbalist. So at that time, Tumbley, they were dirt poor. So, But the nice thing about the Northeast at the time, especially in New York, thanks to the Erie Canal, they moved to Rochester, New York, where business was really prospering. And so what he did is he hooked up initially as a uh, just a, an office boy for this French cures doctor. Uh, his French name was Lispinard, but his, his name was Reynolds. The French were considered better at sex diseases, you know, a more promiscuous kind of culture. So that's what Tumbley was doing. Initially, he was spreading out pamphlets. And uh, so some of the Christian community thought that was pornographic material. That was 1850. But 1853, there was this charismatic Indian herb doctor, R.J. Lyons, that came into Rochester. And Tumbley hooked on to him real fast. This man was just a few years, maybe 10 years older than Tumbley. But by 1856, Tumbley was already a fully-fledged Indian herb doctor, crossed the border into London, Ontario, and opened up his first office. Within that year, he was a millionaire in today's standards. So he knew the business, and he knew how to profit. And it was all about exploitation. It was a quack business. And so even though the herbal medicines made you feel good, Tumbley claimed he was curing people. He was curing cancer. He was curing consumption or TB. He was curing everything, yet he really wasn't. He would just make them feel well, and he was really exploiting even the, the wealthy. And uh, so he was very good at that. But eventually, they caught on to him, so he'd have to kind of move his business to another city and then uh, go back and forth. And that was the mid-1800s when cable communication wasn't really big yet. So when he would go to another city, they didn't really know about him yet. But eventually it caught up with him. But still, he was what they called the Prince of Quacks. He was the man that he really made money. He would go into a city. First, he would just flood the newspapers with multi-column articles about him and his expertise. Lots of testimonials from the previous city, from mayors, from doctors, how great he was. And then he would go in and he, he would wear five suits a day and he would he would have dogs with him. He'd walk, he would enter circus style, get all of attention. And how ironic one time in 18, around 1856 in near Buffalo, he was opening up an office and what he would do is he would go into the post office. He would mail himself a letter. And when he'd go in there, he would start opening up the letter and he would use this letter opener. And what happened was there'd be coins and dollar bills that would accidentally fall on the floor and he would leave it for the kids. And then so it just kind of walk out like he was just this wealthy person. But while he was opening one of the letters, he says, I call this gutting. <laughs> so, mm. what, you know, how ironic and 30 years later, he is a suspect for uh, uh, Jack the Ripper who <laughs> gutted his uh, victims. Yeah. Can we talk about his uh, physical appearance, the way he dressed? So his business model was to gain attention limelight. But that was not during the Ripper murders, not during the 1880s, but that in the early days, he would go in, he would try to gain attention. He would, like in Buffalo, New York, what he would do is he would dress extravagantly, and then he would give away barrels of flour for everybody. But he wouldn't publicize it all the time. He'd always report that in the paper, so everybody saw that. In the meantime, he was raking in the dough. So that's kind of how he got his attention. But interestingly, the 
the very first office he opened up in London, Ontario, is the very first record of we see him giving poor treatment to some of the ladies, some of the women. So his his misogyny started coming out right, right at the onset. What did he look like? A lot of misconceptions about that as well. We had, do have now a photo, uh, photograph of him, uh, but he was six foot tall, and some people claimed he was six four, things of that nature. But no, in his autobiographies, he, he wrote six autobiographies. He was uh, quite the narcissist. But what happened was is he wrote that he was six foot tall, and he was proud of his height, that he was taller. So if he was really six foot two, he would have definitely claimed that he was six foot two. But at the time, Buffalo Bill was a popular character. So a lot of the Indian herb doctors would try to emulate that with long hair, flowing mustache. And that's what Tumbley would do, any, anything for attention. But at the mean, in the meantime, as early as 1860, I have record of him in the evening sneaking into the slums. And so then he would dress down when he would sneak into the slums. And then uh, because he had a habit of picking up uh, young men and uh, even uh, molesting them. So he would also hire young men, too, as office boys. And then eventually he would molest them. And then he would wind up in jail. Sometimes what would happen when he would dress down, he would go into the slums of every city. uh, And uh, when he would get arrested for some reason, he had gold and diamonds in one pocket. He had upwards of uh, thousands of dollars of today's value in, in the other pocket, never mixed the, the cash and the jewelry. And so why he did that was when he would be arrested, he would show the police his pockets and explain that I'm actually just slumming it because I am a person of great wealth, so I should be treated accordingly. So that's kind of how, one of the reasons. But also it allowed him to post bail quickly. <laughs> so, And then he could hire the best attorneys. And then he got out of a few, quite a few cases, but eventually caught up with him. And, and you write in your book that he had a connection to John Wilkes Booth as well. Yes. And uh, how it's kind of a curious thing because when he was actually arrested on suspicion of the Lincoln assassination, and it was because what happened was, is Tumbley's, when he was in Brooklyn the year before in 1864, he had an office boy that he would use. And, and what I re- report, and I wrote an article on this, when uh, John Wilkes Booth went to New York City to perform in 1864 with his brothers, that was the last time he performed with his brothers. His mother lived in New York City. And Tumbley loved that he had a passion for uh, plays and performances. And what happened was that office boy said that Tumbley and John Wilkes knew each other, but more importantly, that the other conspirator or the assassin, David Harold, Tumbley actually had hired Harold in 1864 as an office boy, which I demonstrate that that's wrong because it was actually another person, Mark Blackburn, that was who, who it was. But they looked alike. But the important thing was, is Tumbley, because that was a case of mistaken identity, he could also say that he was not never a friend of John Wilkes Booth. Well, what do we find? Record of him, John Wilkes Booth was in, uh, in 1863, the year before that, he was performing in Buffalo. And he was hanging out with Francis Tumbley. So I have record of Tumbley being in that area. And so the 
eyewitness was likely correct that he was hanging out with Tumbledee. And the only reason why he would have been hanging out with uh, John Wilkes Booth is because he loved young men and he loved uh, actors. It was, had nothing to do with anything about uh, being pro-Southern, pro-Union, pro anything, because Tumbledee only cared about himself. So any kind of cause, uh, even the Irish Fanian cause, that would be kind of a side thing that Tumbledee would exploit. But it was all about himself, really. So you're saying that his association with Booth was partly the result of an attraction, a, a crush? Or- yeah, and, it, and he likely probably would have liked to have a relationship with him. But John Wilkes Booth, that, now, of course, actors, they can, you know, who knows. But John Wilkes Booth had a fiancé at the time, I think. But it would have been a, an issue where John Wilkes Booth was looking for money. He wanted funding for what he was doing. And he would have loved this Irish American here that had a lot of money so he could take advantage of them, maybe try to convince him to join the cause. And that's where I would see that Tumbley would never have done that. And you said he was arrested, right? Yeah, he was arrested for three weeks. Uh, what happened was he was in St. Louis and he was initially arrested because he was wearing semi-military uniform. But then uh, uh, Tumbley actually went to uh, uh, Lincoln's funeral. You know, at the end of the funeral, it was in Springfield, Illinois. Uh, Edwin Stanton was the Secretary of War at the time, and he was a radical Republican. Stanton actually was the one that got Tumbley arrested because when they got word of this young boy thinking that Tumbley was connected to him, they just immediately arrested him. The writ of habeas corpus was around at the time. That means that if you get arrested, then within 24 hours, you have to be in front of the judicial system, with the exception of the Civil War. If it had anything to do with a Civil War, Lincoln assassination, they could hold you for three weeks. Tumbley hated that, and so he wrote about that. His first autobiography was all about his, his wrongful arrest, which it likely was a wrongful arrest, but they kept him in there for three weeks. In the at the old Capitol prison in Washington D.C., but eventually they had to let him go because they would have not had anything on him. But yeah, that happened. So a lot of people thought, well, here's Tumbley trying to get into the limelight, so that's why he did it. But it was really not. It was uh, Tumbley would not have enjoyed that because he actually uh, liked the Lincolns. He claimed that he was friends with the Lincolns back then. The president elect. It was not January 20th that you become president. It was in March. So what Lincoln did was he he would go into uh, for his uh, inaugural address and he he had a parade that went through New York City. And wouldn't you know, there were reports of Tumbley on his horse next to the Lincoln's buggy. (laughs) So so he was right with them. And the report was that Tumbley actually took care of his son at some watering hole, maybe Saratoga Springs or something the year before. So he likely did have a a kind of a a distant friendship or something, especially with the mother, the wife, I'm sorry. So Tumbley did not hate uh, Lincoln's. He he was not uh, pro-Southern, but he hated Stanton because Stanton was, what happened is, is when Lincoln was assassinated, Stanton, the secretary of war took over. It wasn't the, the vice president at the time was a quite junior and insecure. So Stanton, because he was in charge of the army, he basically started ordering everybody around. And so Stanton controlled it with an iron fist until the vice president could become president. So 
in there, that's when Tumbley got arrested. So uh, Tumbley just blamed everything on this radical Republican. So that's kind of what he writes in his autobiography. When we come back, possible reasons for Dr. Tumblety's intense hatred of women. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Back again. So not only was he a peddler of remedies, uh, cure-all remedies, but, but he also considered himself a, a surgeon as well. Yes, exactly. And especially he, in his, in his autobiographies, he writes that he is, a, uh, he is a disciple of Abernathy. Abernathy was a, uh, a surgeon in the early 1800s in England who pushed not to have surgery. Remember back then, it was pre-antibiotics. So after surgery, lots of people died anyway. So it was a 50-50 shot just because of, you know, infection. So Abernathy promoted taking care of it with drugs. And then so at the time, though, the medical community, as I said before, that it was about allopathic medicine, not herbal medicine. Yet so Tumbley, when he started the business, when he was going through Toronto, he just cared about being an Indian herb doctor because he was he was really making a lot of money. But what happened was when he got into Toronto, 
he actually was uh, charged twice for selling without a license. And in Canada at the time, you had to, you know, have passed, you know, the board has to accept you. The medical board was controlled by the medical community that promoted allopathic medicine. So if you weren't, you're screwed. So you wouldn't get the license. And so he did not have an MD. He never went to medical school. Well, so what happened was, is that he got out of that actually, but then when he went to Montreal, he got in trouble there. Um, and they, the medical community actually tried to set him up with a, uh, an abortion case, but uh, he got away with that. So eventually he went to St. John where he, he was arrested for using the title of MD. So what, because of this experience in Canada that he needed this medical diploma, he faked one from Philadelphia. So he faked that he had a medical diploma, but they caught on to him. Uh, he knew that the surgeons at the time, that not only would you have a medical diploma, but to be a credible surgeon, that you would give these illustrated lectures. You'd invite people. And illustrated means that you illustrate it with the anatomical specimens. So what happened is, is uh, when at the onset of the Civil War, when General McClellan was actually the General of the Potomac right after the Battle of the Bull Run in July 1861, that the North was trying to stand up an army. And so a lot of Northerners were coming to uh, Washington, D.C. at the time. Here comes Francis Tumblety. And in 1861, he was not promoting at all his Indian herb doctor business. He was claiming to be a surgeon. He was, going, he, he was trying to convince the general to commission him as a staff surgeon. And what happened was, is uh, 1888, we had this witness that uh, this Charles Dunham that claimed that he was a commander at the time. And Tumbley had invited the officers and medical officers of the generals one evening for an illustrated lecture. And he gave an illustrated lecture. And Dunham recalled that his favorite part of that illustrated lecture was his uterus collection of matrices of all class of women. And that's quite damning because, of course, here's Jack the Ripper took the uterus out of two of his victims. Well, some people were trying to claim that Dunham was actually a spy, So, but he was a reptile journalist, as they called, where he was a, a great liar and that he did it on purpose. He was doing it for the Union to set people up. So they claimed that we can't trust Charles Dunham, who was now a lawyer in 1888 in New York City, because he was good at lying. Well, what I found out was, is just before the Battle of Bull Run, Tumbley was in New York City at his office. And then, uh, and here is this herbal guy. And then in his office, he has these pictures of all these anatomical specimens. And so then found out just before that, when he was in Buffalo, an eyewitness said that when he had his office, he would give medical lectures with thespian emphasis. So he was giving medical lectures prior to that. And then I just found out, don't tell anybody this, this is new. <laughs> but when he was in St. John in 1860, when he was actually uh, a, a man died under his care, this James Portmore, he was uh, a carpenter. And so what happened was they charged Tumbley with manslaughter. But, you know, Tumbley sneaked out of the country and that's how he got to New York City and eventually to the Civil War area. But what happened was is there was a report that the jurors were horrified when they realized that Tumbley took the liver and the kidney from James Portner. So he was doing this. He was, he was collecting these organs. And so at the time, even in Montreal, these medical communities, it was a huge thing for the 
students of med school paid their way to steal bodies from the uh, you know the cemeteries so that they had it for their anatomy class and it was a huge business even though there was a law against it the the law that the rules law that finally stopped it was 1883 but in the 1860s and 5960 it was just a big business and so that was just a norm and then in the winter time you could not bury bodies so what would happen was in especially in Canada you had these buildings that they would store the dead bodies until the the ground would thaw and so the students would steal the bodies from those and Tumbley's office was right there at that time and as a matter of fact his young man that is usually an office boy claimed he was a student of uh, Dr. Tumbledon. Here's the students of the med schools. And then I found out uh, when he had his office in Toronto, he called it the Medical Institute. And then the, the student that he used there was actually a, a doctor with an MD, claimed that he received his MD from Francis Tumbledy around 1859 in Toronto. So he would have been a student there. So there's all these connections with more uh, with the medical diploma. It keeps on going. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet. So that's the most recent research. Sure. So, so as you've already stated, he's well known for his hatred of women, as evidenced partly by his collection of uteruses. Yes. Where do you think this misogyny originated well, one of the things after I wrote the the first book, we discovered uh, nine hundred. Uh, this is a court case in St. Louis. Nine hundred pages of sworn testimony about Tumbley in the last twenty years of his life, and so that includes eighteen eighty eight because he died in nineteen o three. So we have these eyewitnesses, and the reason the why that occurred is because in nineteen o three, when Tumbley died, he again he had three point four million dollars of today's value, and the the family members all wanted it. And so he actually had a will that he bequeathed a third of that money, but two thirds was still sitting there. So there was a big battle, a five-year battle amongst the family members, uh, who gets the money and all that. So there was a lot of these interviews. And in there, time and time again, these people talking about his bitter hatred of these women. Even his one of his Baltimore attorneys said that in, in 19, just a year before he died, He's in the office of this attorney, and he's always uh, Tumbley was always trying to sue people. And but in this case, this woman came in to, for the attorney, but the attorney had to make a phone call, and at the time there was only one phone call in the building, and it was on a different floor. So he said, "I'll just I'll be right back." And when he came down, uh, this woman was outside that room and shaking, and he asked, "What's the matter?" And he, she goes, "I will never be in that uh, room again with that man there." So he was trying to get out what she, what happened, but she refused to say anything, and she just kind of ran away. And so whatever Tumbley did really freaked her out. And here's this guy uh, one year from dying. So he's in his 70s already. And that's what I've also been finding is that uh, Scotland Yard did not know about some of the things of his hatred in the United States, but they had a huge record on him. Uh, and that was the big surprise when in 1990s, when Stuart Evans, who was an expert of the research, he, he got this private letter and this letter from this a famous journalist at the time of the murders. So it was it was in the archives of this guy. And uh, one was a private letter from the chief inspector of special branch at the time of the murders. And it was uh, chief inspector Littlechild. And this this reporter, George Sims, asked him who he thought Jack the Ripper was. 
So this was 1930. So this was like 15 years later. So it was hindsight stuff. And so uh, George Sims thought it was Druitt. So he was saying Dr. D. And so then uh, Chief Inspector Littleschild said, well, I don't know about a Dr. D, but I know about a Dr. T. Tumbley, and he was a very likely suspect. And then he talked about that amongst the suspects, you know, he's the very likely suspect. And he said that Scotland Yard had this uh, dossier, this large dossier on it, and talked about his bitter hatred of women. So in that file, there's evidence of him, which is now gone, but something happened in London that uh, that shows his bitter hatred. And recently, more of a collection of uh, uterus specimens as well. That's going to be coming up soon. Do you think that there was something in his early life that, that turned him away from women in, in general? Was there a cause for it? I think uh, I think a few things. One is that what we discovered was that he was a hermaphrodite, as in he was uh, an intersex condition, and there's different types of hermaphrodite. If he was a true hermaphrodite, as in basically he had male and female parts. And one of his other Baltimore attorneys remembered him passing out in his office and his pants falling down, and he noticed that. And uh, so he had heard rumors from the police, this this uh, attorney in Baltimore, that Tumbley was a hermaphrodite. So he asked him straight up, and Tumbley said, well, that's, that's a curse that's been with me all my life. And uh, so then there's a couple other cases where uh, some other independent people had talked about his condition, including the man that uh, the undertaker who cleaned his body said that his penis was the size of the tip of your thumb. And it was really the strangest thing he ever saw. And what happened was, is they were devout Catholics. And at the time, uh, at that time, there were a lot of uh, misconceptions with Catholic doc- doctrine as there is today. And one of them was that that it was not Adam that committed the original sin. It was Eve deceiving Adam. Therefore, it's women. Women are inherently evil, bad. So it's original sin that caused disease in the world or his condition. So he likely blamed women right at at the beginning for that. But in the family, you could see that there was a division of, uh, of sexes too because when you look at the census material, the women were recorded as illiterate, but the brothers, the three brothers were literate. So the brothers went to school. And then there's a report now that we've just found that his brother Lawrence uh, was reported to have the same hatred of women as his brother, as they said. And then there's a couple cases in Rochester showing that when he was a teenager, he had this, he he avoided women as much as he could. Also, we have record of him with his young men what he would like to do is he liked to recruit literate young men to write his letters for him and do things. And one person is Sir Henry Hall Kane, who was from Liverpool, and he's a famous uh, poet, author. And when Hall Kane was 19 years old, he actually went to Tumbley because Tumbley had an office in Liverpool, and they eventually hooked up. And, and what happened was we have the Letters from Tumblety in Hall Kane's archives, and in there he he's uh, just like as recorded other uh, attorneys talking about that Tumblety would write letters to his young men saying stay away from women they're the curse of the land he would say, and that's where you get this idea that they are the curse of the land, and that they are decoys. 
And what Tumblebee believed, and you can see from these letters, especially with Hall Keynes, is that he believed when young men were in their teenage years, that was the year that they could either go one way or another because they're so susceptible. And so he believed that it was at that time that women lured young men away from their intended lovers, him, <laughs> basically. So, golly. And then. Yeah, and then so he would his habit always. So many people talked about it. even this this judge that knew him in New Orleans said his habit was each evening he would go in the slums, and uh, you know that's just like Whitechapel, the going in the slums. So he did that all of his life. In the evening, that was his habit to go in the slums. He would go in the same place where these prostitutes were. So this hatred of especially prostitutes you could see because he would live that each evening. So how did Tumblety find himself in England during the period when the Jack the Ripper murders happened? Well, initially it started because what happened was, is when Tumblety was arrested for the Lincoln conspiracy, they confiscated his money in St. Louis and he was raking in money. And so he claims it was a million dollars in that year's value, but likely it wasn't that much, but it was quite a bit, I bet. And so he claimed that they didn't give it back. And so what he did was he went to the British consulate and said, I'm a, a British subject. Could you help me get my money back from the U.S. government? So that kept on going back and forth. So we have letters of that correspondence. So in 1869 was the first time he went to London to try to push that. Well, he had a sister living in Liverpool and he had a sister that lived in Bath, England, both places. And so he would visit family. And so that's why he opened up his office 1875 in Liverpool because his sister lived there. And we have this correspondence every in, right into the 1870s. So the next time he went to England was about 1872. And then, then there's reports that he, he made it to England at least once a year. And, he, uh, and one report has it twice a year that he would go to England all the way to 1888, where that's when he was arrested on suspicion and he sneaked out of the country. But he was interviewed by a number of people by a New York World Reporter after the Ripper murders and he was safely in the United States because they could not extradite him back. But he he admitted to them that he was in the Whitechapel district during the murders. And he also admitted that to a young man in New Orleans. And then so that young man said that under oath that Tumblety admitted that he was there. So when you look at means, motive, and opportunity, he was definitely opportunity. He was definitely there at the time. And we also know that because when he was uh, initially arrested on suspicion, this was probably early November 1888 or October 1888. What happened was, is at the time, Scotland Yard, they were lost. And the investigators were lost. And so what they did is they doubled the patrols and they the, the goal was they were going to arrest anybody any male, lone male, that was talking to any of the unfortunates and then take them into the station, local station, get their name and get where they live and then cable scout yard, see if they have a file on them. If there's a red flag, then they would deal with them more or just let them go. Well, what happened was, is here's Francis Tumblety, who was, at the time, he had retired about 10 years before and he retired and told everybody, and this is the big thing, was that he, that he was a retired surgeon. And that his father was this famous surgeon in Dublin. So here it is. He's promoting that. And at the time, there was a suspicion that Jack the Ripper had anatomical knowledge. And also, in October, there were a couple letters. And there's a letter that, that's called the Dear Boss letter right now 
that in September 27th, that came out. And that was just a couple of days before the double event where two women were murdered. And it said uh, in, in the letter, it was written red. And it's actually the first time that you see the, na- the name Jack the Ripper. That's where the name Jack the Ripper came from was this Dear Boss letter. But it had what the British knew were Americanisms in there. There was like a dozen, meaning British people don't talk this way. Americans do, like Dear Boss, that phrase right there. And they initially didn't take that letter seriously until in the letter said that he, he was going to take the ear off one of these women and the ear was uh, cut, severed. Part of the ear was severed in one of the women. So the next in, on September 30th. So they took that quite seriously. Well, here, so their idea is possibly Jack the Ripper is an American, has anatomical knowledge. Here comes Francis Tumbley coming in and claiming, hey, what you're arresting me, you, and he shows his pockets that he's rich. He says, I'm a retired surgeon. What are you doing? So that right there would have been red flagged. And so then what happened was, is just like Chief Inspector Littlechild said, he had a huge file in Scotland Yard because uh, ever since 1873, he was arrested for usually sodomy, but he was always in, you know, dealing with the other side of the law in a lot of cases. And also that's, Little Child said there was something in there that talked about his his bitter hatred of women, especially prostitutes. So red flag, red flag, red flag. And so that right there would have said, uh-oh, uh, this guy we got to take seriously. Now, nobody saw the murders. So even if you, if you arrest them, as I was earlier talking about the writ of habeas corpus, which was also in effect in England at the time, you arrest a person, you just can't hold them. Now, Scotland Yard was part of the executive branch with the the prime minister is at the head and then home office the home minister that person's in charge of you know the police force and so what happens is they arrest but then they have to put them in front of the uh, a police court magistrate which would be part of the judicial branch within 24 hours unless you charge them well what happened was they had n- nothing on him on the murders but because At the time, he had letters from four young men from July to November that showed that he was basically doing some homosexual acts. So that was called gross indecency at the time. So they knew they had him on that. So you can see in the reports that the newspaper reports that that they arrested him and they were just going to keep him off the streets to hold him in order so they can do a deeper investigation. And if the murder stopped, maybe he's it. So what happened is, is he was received into custody on November 7th. So then that means you're in front of the magistrate within a 24 hours. And so that was a magistrate, Han A. We don't have any record of this. What happened is it was a closed session, which is rare, unusual to have a closed session, meaning there was always a British reporter at the police courts so they could record news. But the magistrate had the ability to have the reporter leave for a case that they didn't want in the papers. Well, for gross indecency, they certainly would have wanted that in the papers because here's this American that's abusing young British boys. Absolutely. So it wasn't Tumbledy, even though if Tumbledy didn't want it in the papers, it was Scotland Yard that didn't want it in the papers, which hinted that they had something more serious about that. So at first, what you do is you have, a, uh, a it's called a remand hearing where the the magistrate hears it and says, this case should likely go up to the judge. So we have to have a committal hearing to possibly commit it to the judge. So he, he usually set it up in a week later. So do we want to remand, put him in just prison till the committal hearing 
is he a threat to leaving, sneaking away? And so there was no case for that. So he likely would have uh, posted bail. He had the money in his pocket. We know that Magistrate Hannay allowed bail on the November 14th because November 16th, he posted bail. We have that record of that in the uh, Central Criminal Court calendars, November, December calendar, that he posted bail. So Hannay allowed bail on the committal hearing November 14th. And here's November 9th where uh, the last, the Kelly murder occurred. So people are trying to argue that Tumbley was in jail at the time, but what we just found out, uh, there's another case that was an open session, so it was in the papers uh, within a couple years of that, where Han A, it was the same thing where this young this man molested four young men, uh, so it's almost identical case. So they allowed open session, so he allowed bail for 400 pounds at the remand hearing, and then when the committal hearing came, and he committed it to the judge like uh, like Tumbley's was committed to the judge. He allowed bail again, but that was for a thousand pounds. But you could see that Han A was allowing bail at both. And also, Tumbley would have easily gotten out by just, or Scout in the Yard would not have taken him seriously if he was in jail when Mary Kelly was murdered. Yet now we have lots of evidence to show that Scout in the Yard took him seriously. Interesting. There are many people who believe that the person who wrote the Dear Boss letter was not Jack the Ripper, though, right? Right. Most people don't. As a matter of fact, Chief Inspector Littlechild, in that Littlechild letter, which is now what it's now known to be, that uh, made a comment uh, about Francis Tumbley, he also talked about that the, the name Jack the Ripper likely came from these two reporters at the Central News Agency, which meant they wrote the letter, the Dear Boss letter. So Scotland Yard was not convinced afterwards of that. But they took it seriously at that time because what happened was after the double event, two women were murdered, Elizabeth Stride first and Catherine Eddowes on September 30th. Just a couple days later, part two of the letter came in. We now call it the Saucy Jack letter, basically saying, see, I told you so. And so because of that, uh, they took it seriously at that time. But soon after, they decided it wasn't uh, as much. Why was Scotland Yard so obsessed with the idea of the killer wearing an American slouch hat? Well, they were. it was dead end after dead end. And uh, today, a lot of the suspects, uh, you'll, you'll see, again, nobody saw the murders. So you don't really have a suspect for anybody killing. What you have are that some people saw a possibly the unfortunate with somebody maybe a few minutes before. And at that time, people are taking that so seriously. Even uh, Assistant Commissioner Anderson was convinced that one particular I would likely saw Jack the Ripper. And uh, so that's where he went into Kosminski. Well, that, therefore, it's Kosminski. And I think the average height would be like 5'7 or something to that effect. But eyewitness testimony is the weakest testimony we have. As a matter of fact, recently they did a, uh, a big research called the Innocence Project, and they looked at 237 cases where the conviction was because of eyewitness testimony, and 73% were overturned because of DNA evidence. 73 that's today. And so back then they didn't know eyewitness testimony was that poor. But even still, though, we humans are convinced of our eyewitness testimony. Let's say, for example, Elizabeth Long was, and 
I witnessed in the Annie Chapman murder on 29 Hanbury Street, saw her with somebody right there, possibly within that hour. The issue, though, is that she said that it was normal to have unfortunates or prostitutes hang there. It was a normal hangout. So it wasn't a surprise. It's not like, oh, could that be Jack the Ripper while she walks by? She's just doing her business. So then she has to recollect. And then when you're in court, just think even today, when let's say the defense attorney is just ripping you apart, you're going to hold to your guns and say, oh, I definitely saw that. It was absolutely that person when you really should not have done that. And that's what that innocent project really shows is that the eyewitness testimonies are very weak. Um, uh, so the American slouch hat, where that likely came from was, again, uh, it was September 30th, October 1st, when the Dear Boss letter came. And so then a, a possible American. So one of the things that uh, people talked about a lot, you could see quickly see an American because they would be wearing some style American hat was the slouch hat was a hat that had, a you know, like a crease in the middle wide brim, even really wide, and it was really Buffalo Bill style hats. But the British would wear like deer stalker caps where they're rounded tops. And so uh, you can pick out an American. What happened was, is Sir George Arthur was a royal that was arrested on suspicion in early November. And he was wearing an American slouch hat at the time. And uh, they kept it out of the papers. But they didn't keep it out of the New York World Papers because E. Tracy Greaves, the New York World correspondent, he had a connection. He admitted that he had twice in October that he had a Scotland Yard informant. And in that article that he was writing, which was November 17th, this cable, the headline story was Sir George Arthur getting arrested, but the police were successful in keeping it out of the papers. Well, the second story was this American named Cumbledy, this New Yorker named Cumbledy with a K, was arrested on suspicion. And that was the very first time we see reported that Tumbledy was arrested on suspicion. And so Tumbledy admitted that he was wearing an American slouch hat. Uh, That was later. So what that means is that they were on the lookout. But it was again, it was at the time they were they were pretty much arresting everybody. But if you were an American and you're, let's say, giving a hard time to a, an unfortunate, you're likely going to be arrested pretty fast. And so that's kind of where, where we hear about the American slouch hat. And it wasn't just that, because even before Sir George Arthur was arrested, I have a report of uh, the uh, a New York newspaper complaining that the British are thinking about it's an American and it's all about this American slouch hat. So there was a possibility. There was a case in October that this man that was very much like Tumbledy. Was he Tumbledy? We don't know because they didn't say his name. But at that spot, he was bragging to the other members of the lodging house about the Ripper murders, and he knew uh, so much. And he was this American, and he, w- he was wearing this American slouch hat. So what happened was he got arrested. So was that an- when Tumbley was initially arrested? It may very well have been, or it might not have been. But what it does show is that there's this American slouch hat thing going on in October of 1888. So if Tumble T had removed uteruses as Jack the Ripper, what were the, the chances that the police would have found them in his possession? They, they did arrest him after all. I'd assume that they would have maybe searched his property. Or... Well, so it was the uterus from two women, the kidney from one, and then the heart from Mary Kelly. How coincidental that in January of 1888, and when Tumbley was in Toronto, 
He told this Toronto reporter that he was constantly in dread of sudden death because of kidney and heart disease. And here's a guy who has a history of this uterus collection. So those organs can only be connected to one suspect when you look at all the suspects. Nobody else knows why did Jack the Ripper steal those organs. And there is nothing except with in case of Francis Tumbley, there would have been a reason, especially when we look at the offender signature. Dr. Brent Turvey looked at the, he's a uh, forensic scientist, and he looked at the, uh, the records of the victims. He did not see sadosexual serial killer. He saw uh, meaning uh, sadistic behavior. He sees that they, the offender cut the throats deeply to stop the heart. So then when you eviscerate, you don't get blood splatter. So it wasn't you were sadistically enjoying the death of this woman and watching them die. And then there was a, a reassurance-oriented where that reassurance-oriented behavior is where you collect trophies. And so these organs would likely possibly be some trophies for some reasons, some connection. And for Tumbley, there would definitely be a connection. He blamed these women because we found out that Tumbley actually had neurosyphilis. And it was in the late 1888s where he... He realized it was out of control. By the mid-1890s, then he was walking in the slums 100% as a homeless person, even though he was still a millionaire. So his mind really went by that time. When we come back, more evidence that kept Francis Tumblety on Scotland Yard's radar. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now and can you guess the twist? Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters, to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws. 
I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. And we're back. When Tumblety was arrested, there were no body parts found among his possessions, right? Uh, we don't know that for sure. What we do have a report, there were actually five correspondents, American correspondents for the papers. The four New York papers had London correspondents, and then uh, Boston Globe had a London, uh, London correspondent. In the Boston Globe, that London correspondent who was in London at the time said that they uh, went into his room and uh, they found things like the letters, uh, something. But other reports said that the letters were actually on his person. But uh, what we do know now, in the 1880s, Tumbley, he would still rent a room in the Apache Hotel in a wealthy area, but he would also rent a room in the slums. And I have record of this. He actually had three rooms at one time in 1881 in New Orleans, one in a posh hotel and two in the slums in two different spots at the same time. So he would have much of his stuff in one room. So when these uh, British police officers were uh, trying to determine their residence, of course, he would uh, let them know that he's living at this spot. He wouldn't tell him other spots. And so if he was actually keeping them, he would have likely kept them at a place that uh, they would not have known. That's what would have likely happened if Tumbley. And also, Lately, what I found out is that there was a report from the New York Sun and their London correspondent wrote a report and said that one of the reasons why the Tumbley was arrested is because of the Wayne Baxter theory that uh, there is a person collecting uterus specimens, trying to buy uterus specimens. Well, nobody ever connected that with Francis Tumbley before. And what he's trying to say is Scotland Yard connected Tumbley with the uterus collection. They had no idea that Tumbley had a uterus collection in the Civil War because that didn't get there that far. So how did the New York Sun uh, London correspondent connect Tumbley with this uterus collection? So then that leads to what happened is, is when Tumbley sneaked out of the country, Scotland Yard actually followed him to back to uh, New York where there was a uh, Scotland Yard detective right outside his window when he finally came. They could not extradite him back because he, the case at hand was a misdemeanor charge, and you can't extradite with a misdemeanor charge. But that detective was telling people that he was, you know, he was looking up at the window of Tumbley's at 79 East 10th Street, where Tumbley's room was, saying that he's going to catch the killer that did this. And then, wouldn't you know, that made the papers December 4th, and by December 5th, Tumbley sneaked out of 79 East 10th Street and vanished. And Scotland Yard didn't know. New York City never knew where he went. And we just found out, or I just found out just last year, where he went. Thanks to newspapers getting digitally scanned, this small low city town, Waterloo, New York, digitally scanned their newspapers, and they said that Tumbley's in town. Well, I knew that was true because Tumbley's sister lived there. 
And so what was curious about that is the reason why they even made a comment about that is because two women got accosted in the evening <laughs> in Waterloo and Tumbley was in town. So, uh, oh boy. So, again, Scotland Yard never knew where he was. How did he escape from England? Well, one of the things that he was really good at, and, he, and be, uh, being wealthy really helps out. And so he, a uh, uh, couple things happened. One is that the, again, the case at hand was the gross indecency and indecent assault with these four young men. So on December or November 14th, it was committed to the judge uh, for a, a November 20th trial. When that happens, it has to go in front of a grand jury first. So November 18th was the grand jury, and they returned a true bill, meaning the jurors were convinced Tumbley did it. So at this time, when it went in front of the judge on December 20 or November 20th, uh, Tumbley wasn't there. It was only his attorney trying to ask to postpone the case till the December 10th, which the judge agreed to. Well, on that November 20th, wouldn't you know that we have record of Tumbley cabling money from his New York bank to him enough to get away. So that was November 20th. Chief Inspector, Inspector Littlechild said that the first time they saw him outside of England was in Boulogne, France. And then the last time, then it was recorded by the New York, uh, E. Tracy Greaves again, the New York World uh, Correspondent, that the last time they saw him was in Havre, France, on his way to America. Instead of going his usual exit, Liverpool crossed to New York City, or sometimes Toronto. He actually sneaked the other way. So they were likely, if they were keeping an eye on him, they were likely thinking because his family members live in Liverpool, he's going to try to make it to Liverpool. Well, he went the other way and crossed the English Channel into France. So he had never done that before. Well, it's because he was sneaking out. And so not because they were on him, onto him about the Jack Ripper murders, because they, he knew darn well that he was going to be in jail in Holloway Prison for two to ten years because of the gross indecency case. So then by uh, November 24th, noon is when the, the La Bretagne left port to New York City. So he had to have been on, on that ship before noon on the 24th. So he had sneaked, sneaked through within those three days. Interestingly, that the warrant out for his arrest was December 10th because it wasn't in front of the judge until December 10th. And he was a no-show for December 10th. So they issued a warrant on December 10th. How come Scotland Yard knew exactly where he was or where he was going back in the early November or the late Novembers? It's because they were interested in him. I mean, if it was just merely a case of a misdemeanor offense, why would Scotland Yard be so concerned about him, especially at a time when they were stretched out thin and they're focused on the, the Whitechapel murders? Well, we find out now that here's this this Scotland Yard detective followed uh, follow him to New York City. So after arriving back in the States, did he become a, a suspect in any murders here that, that might have been similar to the Jack the Ripper ones? Well, that's actually a good question. And it's kind of a corollary question to that is, were there any murders, Ripper-like murders in America that Francis Tumley, if he was Jack the Ripper, would that be? One of the things, the first misconceptions, uh, even even if you uh, look up on the FBI's website, one of the uh, biggest misconceptions is that serial killers have to continue to kill. 
sometimes they do, especially if they're sadosexual. If they're, they have the sexual desire, sexual impulse to continue, you'll see that. But if it's, uh, let's say, Dr. Brent Turby talking about uh, Jack the Ripper's motive would not have been sadosexual, a sexual thing, because uh, the victims were really not penetrated sexually, but it was anger retaliatory, hatred, a hatred of these, maybe the of these women. And he talks about sometimes you see that uh, somebody kills women that look like an ex-girlfriend or their mother, something to that effect. And that's this anger retaliatory. Uh, so my first comment about if there's any connection in America would be, if Jack the Ripper was sadosexual, Tumbley was not Jack the Ripper uh, because his desire was young men. And, and there would, there, to me, it, there wouldn't have been anything sexuality. But if it was anger retaliatory, that would have been Tumbley to a T. And in a case of serial offenders that have anger retaliatory, they tend not to, to continue, especially if they almost get caught. But regardless, for some reason, we know that when you look at Tumbley going to London, he tended to come back from London in the late summer, early fall, when the Atlantic wasn't really uh, nasty. But November, December, the Atlantic Ocean was getting nastier. So it's not the most entertaining time to cross the Atlantic. But for some reason, he wanted to stay in England at the time, longer than usual. And the only reason why he sneaked out of the country was because of that gross indecency case. So he wasn't done with whatever he was doing. Even if he wasn't Jack Ripper, he wasn't done. He was likely staying there longer. So that if he did have an agenda to continue this, when you look at it, he was in New York. Uh, he considered New York City his residence, Brooklyn, New York City his residence. Uh, from 1888 to 1893, he continued. 1893 is when he changed residence to Baltimore. He was retired, and he all of his travels were to watering holes like Hot Springs, Arkansas, health spas, and because of his you you know his uh, rheumatism as he called it, but it was really Hot Springs, Arkansas was actually the mecca for syphilis at the time. But in this case, we we see that. In New York City, there was actually three murders around there. New Jersey, New Jersey, New York City, there were three murders of women. One was very, very similar to uh, uh, Jack the Ripper murders, Carrie Brown. But uh, I'm of the opinion that Tumbley, even though Tumbley lived within uh, a mile, of, a half a mile of where Carrie Brown was murdered, I still don't think that he would have done it. In a, so, But again, we do have these murders that are happening. But also what we find out is Tumbledy was actually going to Mexico all this time, and we never knew this. And so he would always hit uh, the Mardi, Mardi Gras in New Orleans, and then he asked this young man if he wanted to come to Mexico with him. And that was one of his things. And so Mexico would easily have been a place if you were trying to collect organs or whatever you were doing. That definitely, he could have still continued any kind of deaths. He would probably get away with quite a, quite a bit in that country. So if you had to pick one piece of evidence that you find the most compelling that tells you that Tumblety was Jack the Ripper, what would it be? Well, what's interesting is, is what you kind of hinted right there is uh, I'll never say 100% because if you say 100%, you know, case closed, then you, you're done with research. Now you're just trying to look to f- try to find evidence and that's it. And that's not, should not be doing that. And that's, uh, so it's inappropriate. But, um, what happens is, is with Tumblety, the big thing when my first book was to show that De- Scotland Yard definitely took him seriously, and they took him really seriously. 
enough to continue the investigation in, in America until uh, the the summer of 1889 when Mackenzie was murdered and Scotland Yard, many in Scotland Yard considered that a Jack the Ripper murder. Uh, and Tumbley was in New York at the time, so therefore he's off the radar. But uh, but prior to that, he was still taken seriously. But then again, Scotland Yard might be wrong. So what is convinced, more convincing for me is first is that with uh, the the modern uh, forensic experts looking at the offender's signature and the MO and the motive of what they see matching Tumbley is, is convincing. But then a few other things, and it definitely is bitter hatred. But what we found out was in 1881, this was seven years before the murders, and uh, under sworn testimony, this young man named Richard Norris, who hooked up with Tumbley from 1881 to about 1901, 1902, and he had to admit that he was this young male prostitute at the time, or he would make extra money, as he said. But it was dangerous for him to say this in 1905 in front of the judge because he actually was a uh, prominent employee of the police department. He had a family and kids at the time, too. Yet he still had to admit what he was doing with this Tumbley when, in his early 1880s. But what happened was, is a few weeks after Tumbley finally got Richard Norris to uh, help him out and write letters for him, he uh, locked the door and he, uh, he molested Norris. And so Norris got into detail. And, and Norris is another one said, he was a morphodite. <laughs> so that's what he used the term morphodite. So the, the attorney would say, you mean hermaphrodite? Yeah, morphodite. But then, uh, but what he said was, is he had a cigarette in his mouth, this young Norris. Tumbley ripped that cigarette out of his mouth and gave him a cigar. And he said, there's two things wrong with young men these days, smoking cigarettes and streetwalkers. They should all be disemboweled. And, uh, Scotland Yard never knew he said this. This is such a Ripper-like thing. And then what I found out was at that time, in the 1880s, in his travel chest, young Richard Norris said that he showed him his collection of surgical knives. And he said that it was in a tray. Well, remember Tumblety, uh, during the Civil War, tried to convince the general that he was a surgeon. Well, surgeons owned their own surgical knives at the time. So if you're going to say that you're a surgeon, you better have your collection of surgical knives. And when you looked at a, a even Google this and you go on to look at the uh, a surgical kit, Civil War style surgical kit, you have the saws and other things at the bottom, but there's a tray with knives. And here's, here's Richard Norris talking about this tray. And then the tray was actually in his travel chest. Well, that same travel chest is the chest that Tumbley would use to go to England at the time, in the 1880s. So here we have, we connect surgical knives with Tumbley's travel chest and 1880s. He likely had those in 1888 with him in London. So the thing is, is that when I wrote my first book, I didn't, we didn't even discover this stuff yet. And, and every time we discover something new, it's damning. Not only damning, how many other suspects are connected to, you know, the surgical knives and then uh, are, you know, had said such ripper-like comments before the murders. So it's like, wow, this is kind of surprising. Because then to find out that uh, also 1903 was his last will and testament. But in 1901, he wrote a, a will and testament in Baltimore 
because he thought he was going to die. You know, he was con- even in the 1880s, he was constantly in dread of sudden death because of his condition. So he uh, in there, he actually had his uh, uh, them write that he was going to give a large sum of money to the Baltimore home for the fallen women. And the question was, why did why is that written? And because that that is who Tumbley hated most. That group of people were were fallen women. Why would you bequeath that? Well, the one thing that was so true is Tumbley was a devout Catholic. He always went to church, and that's one of the, the theories is that it was a kind of like a a religious maniac that were killing these uh, these prostitutes. You could see clearly what Tumbley to do is if you understand the background back then, um, which is again a, a misconception of Catholic doctrine, but is to earn your way to heaven. But what happened was, is he seems to be to have been greasing the skids because his next step was death. And then, you know, he's not bringing anything with him and he's going to be in front of the almighty is what he believed. So you better have uh, atoned for your sins as best you can. So it fits that Tumbley would have done this, you know, and it's so how coincidental. And then 1903, when he went to St. Louis into this Catholic uh, hospital to die, that he was there for three weeks, and he went there, and in his pockets and on his personal in his personal possession was all of his jewelry that he always had, and a, and a certificate or a letter from his New York bank showing how much money he was. Again, he always had that in his pocket, so when he would be caught in the slums, that he could show that he was upper, uh, you know, upper status. But what they found was is uh, two cheap imitation rings that were never reported in his pockets, and we have three or four other times where things in his pockets were reported because that made the paper because he was arrested. Well, wouldn't you know it, Annie Chapman, she died in uh, September 8th is when Annie Chapman died right after Polly Nichols. And that's, uh, she was the first one that the uterus was taken. And, but also Jack the Ripper ripped off the wedding ring and keeper ring, a set ring, two, two brass rings that were ripped off. And at the time, and even today, people don't know why Why would Jack Ripper have taken those. And the idea was maybe Jack Ripper was trying to fake a, a robbery. Well, that wouldn't have fake. Who cares? He never did it to anybody else. So what's interesting about that is that actually is connected back to Francis Tumbley. Because if you looked at all the uh, five women that were murdered, there were some more, but let's say the, uh, the canonical five, the five that were murdered, even the other ones, there was only one object on them that was connected to heterosexual bonding, heterosexual love. That's those, that wedding ring. And so that's what Tumbley hated most, heterosexuality. So it would have been Tumbley. The, if it was Tumbley, the reason why he would have been taking the, you know, the kidney and the heart and the uterus is because he's blaming these women. And that's what his disease was. It's the same reason why he would have taken those rings. So again, uh, when you look at any of the other suspects, they don't have an answer to why this person would take those rings, why this person would take those specific organs. Not, let's say, why didn't they take the liver? But they didn't. You know, so this is, uh, so it's kind of intriguing. And then, to, and, and I'm still researching. We I keep on finding more information. So that's the fun part about it. And then uh, next year, we should have a, a documentary coming out. So that'll be nice. So we'll see how that goes. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So tell us about some of the other things that, that you're doing. I know you have a, a website, a bunch of other books. You host a podcast. You, you've been working on this documentary. 
Yes, the uh, well, I my primary love is passion is research. You know, that's how uh, my family history. That's how I got involved with this. I when I found out that Tumbley was buried just an hour and a half away from me, then I wanted to go find this, and, and so I found it, and then uh, did some YouTubing on that. But then, uh, but it's just the discovery. Even my 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 background is you know paleontology and fossil stratigraphy and collecting these fossils, knowing that no one has ever seen these fossils and discovering things that even the scientists have not yet. And that was just fun, the, the discovery thing. So even uh, in my family history, there's discovery. But so it was discovering things that nobody knows about. And then to find out is everything I'm finding is that so damning to Tumblety and the, the experts actually discounted him. And it was because of crafty arguments with limited information. And uh, so back in the, you know, from the 1990s to 2009, many of the experts really felt they have a bead on this thing, even though they may or may not know who the killer was. Well, now we have to put Tumbley into the equation. How does that fit? Well, I like the idea where he was not much, he's not really considered anything. So what's happened is, is, since I've written them, I've had, I've gotten into some you know enjoyable debates, and then so uh, even some of the uh, the the people you've interviewed, we've or were friends actually, uh, some of the people you've interviewed, but we've had some uh, fun debates about this stuff. But it's it's enjoyable because it's all you know it's all about to me it's all about discovering the truth, and DNA really is not going to work out. So uh, there's a lot of uh, fake news out there, but uh, so that's why you got to always you know get involved with the experts and then uh, so that and then again, again that's what i do and that's one of the fun things about interviewing uh with al warren because we've interviewed some of the top experts and i'm doing the interviewing because i'm the person that you know has the details about that so i don't i don't put my two cents in i ignore my suspect and i i want to get as much as from their perspective as possible so uh so it's fun, and then, uh, but it has uh, made some waves. I, you know, was in a documentary last year uh, called Legend Hunter. Uh, too bad that series in, on a Travel Channel didn't continue. But then um, there's another one coming up with uh, Jason Figgis, who's the director. John West is the producer. Uh, so we're that's filming, and it's and it's all on Francis Dumbledore. So and some of the recent discoveries that have come out. So it's it's exciting to to see that happening. So it's just again. Uh, well, COVID slowed things down for everybody. So it's, it was a bummer because I was supposed to be flown to uh, to London to uh, do the interviews, but uh, they had the camera crew come here <laughs> to Buffalo and do it, which is fine. But it's kind of fun uh, flying uh, to uh, London on, on their dime. <laughs> so, Oh, and your website. Oh, yes. Yes, uh, um, michaellhawley.com. Make sure you put the L for my middle initial. Some MIT professor, Michael Hawley, stole michaelhawley.com, so I had to you know, have michaellhawley.com. But it's my hub. You know, I do social media. I've, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff. And it's, but if you go to my website, I have, you know, well, 20 articles, and they're all free. You can just down, you know, download them there and uh, read all the articles. And then my books are there available, how you can get access. And also podcast interviews too, kind of like this one. And then uh, I videotape myself on some of the lectures that I've done. So some of the lectures, uh, one of my lectures in Baltimore at the Jack Ripper conference in 2016, I have a couple of the videos of that. 
and then some other specific details. Even when I even talked, uh, I did a lecture and people were asking about the a couple of years ago or last year about the possible DNA evidence with on this shawl. So I went into detail about that. I talk about that stuff. So just continue to do that. And, and um, so I think that's kind of the, it's exciting. It's fun to do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you. That was, that was exciting. Again, I have been speaking to Michael Hawley. He is the author of Jack the Ripper, Suspect, Dr. Francis Tumblety. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.